0: Hi everybody it's Jean Nathan it's Crosstown Conversations and um, this Friday we are uh, of course uh, up against um, just about everything you could ask for a pandemic, a possible hurricane, um, and uh, a major social unrest driven by and a very unfortunate event um, with the death of somebody at the hands of the police uh too many of those that have happened and um we're dealing with it on a very serious level and hopefully um more of a unified uh uh, effort uh sooner than later um but i'm optimistic in a way with all of this that's going on that um we're going to tackle it with um a, a really serious um uh focus on trying to um make better things happen and one organization in the city of New Orleans that has been doing that, but it's kind of doubling down right now, is the Hallis Foundation, um, which has joined with the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities to really try to help New Orleans um, critical cultural institutions. And uh, I'm, I'm really interested in this discussion because I think a lot of people are not that aware of the humanities and don't even really know what that means, including myself. I often have trouble just distinguishing between cultural activities in general and and that which falls under the title of humanities. But we have on um, the call with us uh, Jesse Haynes, who's the managing director of the Hellas Foundation and Chris Harder, who is executive director I'm sorry, he's not executive director, but he is one of the leaders of the the, um, Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Um, So um, Jesse, let me start with you because again, the Hellas Foundation uh, certainly has been a major part of the um, community's uh, art um, resources. Uh, we, We often talk in the world about not really having as as strong a philanthropic base as many cities around the country but um the hellas foundation is a major exception to that and um you are putting yourself on the line here to help the humanities in their special effort their culture care program if i have that title correct um, which is again a, a, a highly focused effort the louisiana culture care fund to make sure that organizations that are being hit hard uh, by the pandemic and by other factors um, can make it through this, this rough slog that we're in. So first of all, give me just a, a quick uh, background on, the, um, on your foundation and, uh, and then tell me about um, the effort you've made with the Louisiana Humanities Foundation and, and why.
1: Sure. The Hellas Foundation is committed to providing funding throughout the greater New Orleans area um, for mainly high quality arts access opportunities through our institutions, whether it be through exhibitions and programming, as well as through public art installations and supporting other cultural organizations throughout the city. In all media, however, with a more specific focus on visual arts. We also do have a general fund that we have been using um, to donate significant funds to first responding organizations such as Second Harvest right now, um, which is sort of the one that we speak about less just because um, it's not as you know highly focused as the art funds. Um, so I'll speak briefly about sort of why we were interested in focusing on this. At the beginning of the pandemic crisis, I think there was a lot of um, Wonderful efforts in terms of large funds established to help various sectors, such as gig economy workers, artists specifically, um, you know, various, again, like we were talking about this sort of first responder type of um, food supplies, things like that. And yet there really was no central repository for funding to go for infused funding to cultural organizations and institutions in New Orleans. Um, As you said before, Jean, you know, cities like New York had almost immediately established through their larger philanthropy and foundation support, just as a geographic region, they were able to um, infuse significant money directly to museums, cultural organizations, large and small. And there really was no effort um, initially in New Orleans like that. And because the House Foundation is so committed to our cultural institutions um, as well as cultural organizations, large and small. We were kind of seeking an opportunity to provide funds to a responsible repository grant maker, which in this case was the LEH, the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, because they had such um, responsible and um, thorough but fast. Um, grant making abilities, the LEH received significant funding from the NEH um, to push money out directly into the hands of institutions and organizations in New Orleans and across and, the state.
0: And the NEH, let's just uh, let every
1: oh the national of- yes the yeah, national endowment for the humanities. Um, they provided significant funds to the LEH um, for the LEH to almost immediately through a streamlined process that required very little um, red tape. and you know, significant effort on the parts of organizations throughout Louisiana um, to, you know, infuse these organizations with money. And so when we had the opportunity to provide funds to the LEH to do the same thing um, with a specific focus on New Orleans, we were very excited about that opportunity because it was a way for the Hellas Foundation to shore up um, so many of the organizations that we already support as well as those that we do not have a relationship with um, and ensure that this sort of cultural landscape here, you know, was being taken care of organizationally. Uh, you know, a huge problem facing so many of our museums and cultural organizations that provide services across the community was the ability to um, maintain staff. Um, a lot of them received PPP money but not everyone did and so hearing that not every organization was able to continue to meet p- payroll this was something that was very interesting to us because we recognize that for artists as well as the community to keep on um, functioning in our cultural landscape we need our hardest working organizations and institutions to stay alive um, and just our relationship with the leh's been long-standing because they do such excellent work in the humanities field, it felt like a natural fit for us to work with them um, and allow them to do the grant-making. And right. they, have the, they have the capacity to do so.
0: So, and I want to just call attention to the fact that, um, you know, in, in New Orleans, we tend to think about culture differently. From the way people do in some other cities, I, I often recall a conversation I had many, many years ago with somebody who was uh, working here in New Orleans, but wasn't from here. Who, um, when I was talking about how culturally rich the city was, she was sort of po- poo-pooing that, saying, "Oh, well, you really don't have as much, you know, symphony and ballet and and um, uh, kind of high high culture as some other places." And and I said, "Well, actually, that's not true, but but more than that." Um, we have a very rich original culture that as we always say here bubbles up from the streets from the porches from the homes in new orleans it's a mm-hmm. they, um so i think there's a lot of people who kind of think that our culture somehow just of grows out of the ground like weeds and doesn't <laughs> need to be watered it doesn't need sun and um you know it really takes organizations such as the foundation and um yourself to um kind of get past those assumptions and make sure that there is some sustenance for these organizations and Chris, Chris um, Harder is actually the deputy director of um, uh, the um, foundation and I I want you to please share um, your perspective on how important this funding is.
2: So, so, well, just to just confirm, I'm deputy director of the the Amistad Research Center and can certainly speak to uh, the importance of this type of funding to um, nonprofit and cultural institutions um, here in New Orleans. Um, Many of us, like, like everyone um, during this pandemic, um, as an institution, we're having to Um, make quite a pivot uh, to think about how do we go from an institution uh, where people visit uh, to use our uh, historical resources uh, for their research or for their general interest. we are very much a hands on hands on uh, material uh, institution as an archives and a library um, and how do we make that switch uh, that pivot to uh, working in more of a digital and remote world um, i 'll have to say that our our staff did an absolutely stellar job of being able to quickly uh, think how do we how do we are certain some things some projects we have to put on the back burner how do we bring back burner projects up what can we do to continue to make the center function and how can we also um, not only focus internally on the center but how do we look externally how do we work to make our materials available Uh, of course this hit during the time when suddenly the schools were out and teachers and students were having to think um, how to teach and learn remotely. Um, so one of the things that we really focused on was trying to get information out about our um, uh, online digital um, educational platform, our digital collection, so that teachers and students would have resources that they could pull into uh, the the remote classroom and, and for projects. Um, and this type of funding um, allowed us to work with um, uh, vendors, um, the platforms that we use to make our materials more readily accessible uh, outside of the center. Um, and as, as Jesse said, um, This was something that um, uh, came up quickly. Um, Thankfully, a lot of that red tape was was dispensed with. Grants uh, are often kind of a long-term investment in in time and and getting things in place to submit for them. So being able to um, see the support of the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities uh, to help us quickly make that pivot into a digital and remote world. Um, to continue to make our materials accessible to to everyone um, as as best we can was was certainly a, um, uh, a, a
0: situation that we were we were
2: thankful to be able to uh, work with.
0: Well, um, I certainly understand the challenge of dealing with the technical issues because I'm certainly having a major <laughs> one right this moment where I can't seem to get um, uh, Miranda on our call. I guess I'll have to do her. I'll have to follow up. Uh, uh, right after we uh, finish our conversation. But, you know, Amaset is another um, organization that I think is um, not as high profile um, Mm -hmm. as some in the city, but its work is profoundly important. And so I wish, um, let's take this opportunity to acquaint people a little bit better with it. Why don't you please share um, how it got started, what its Mm -hmm. mission is, and and, and also (laughs) I'd like to know I, what are some of the things that you're going to be doing as a result of the, the funding that is coming your way uh, from mm-hmm. this uh, particular um, effort on the part of the LEH and Palace um, Foundation?
2: Certainly. Well, the Amistad Research Center has a 50-plus years of history itself. Um, the center, we are a, an independent nonprofit archives and library Uh, that has been located in New Orleans since 1970, but the center itself had its origins um, back in 1966 um, um, in the midst of the civil rights movement um, on the campus of Fisk University, uh, historically black university in Nashville, Tennessee and it began as the repository the 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 home to preserve records that related back to an 1841 u.s supreme court case um um, united states versus amistad and this court case dealt with um the lives and the fate of 53 individuals who had been um, abducted in west africa transported to Cuba as part of the international slave trade, and then through their efforts to regain their freedom, uh, wound up in the U.S. court systems for two years until the Supreme Court um, ruled that, in fact, these individuals were were free people. Um, And assisting them, uh, the Amistad Africans, were a group of abolitionists uh, that became known as the Amistad Committee. And this committee, after the Supreme Court case, Uh, joined with other abolitionist groups to found an organization called the American Missionary Association. And that association's records were the start of the Amistad Research Center. But throughout the years, uh, our uh, scope of our collections and our mission has expanded. And so today we say our mission is to collect, preserve, and provide open access to materials that reflect the uh, history of uh, ethnic communities in the United States, civil rights, social justice uh, broadly defined. And so what we do is work with donors, um, individuals, families, organizations who donate um, everything from letters to oral histories to home movies, uh, books, artwork, that reflect that general scope. We work to preserve and organize this material and then make it available for anyone. Um, A lot of our researchers come from universities and colleges uh, to do research, but we also work with a number of educators, uh, middle and high school students, uh, filmmakers and the media, creative uh, writers, artists, um, who uh, find source and and inspiration in our collections. Um, And then they go on to um, uh, write novels, uh, write historical texts. Uh, make movies that tell the story of, of America and often those stories of individuals and communities that haven't been told um, in the past or told correctly. Uh, so as a library and an archive, our our goal is to make our materials as, as widely accessible as, as as we can to everyone. Um, we've been in... in uh, two first, la- or,
0: let yeah. me stop you for just a minute, um, uh, just to give people a little bit of a flavor for the richness of your material. Give me just a couple examples Mm -hmm. of the kind of materials that you have that you can access. And and also, let's be sure and tell people where you are and Mm -hmm. how they can access the material.
2: Certainly. So when you walk into the Amistad Research Center, you have the opportunity to read the letters of civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, in which she's talking about the stress and the toll that her activism is taking on her family, Um, how her landlord uh, is trying to kick the family out of their home um, because of her activities. You can come in and see Um, photographs and moving images and actually read the court cases that, um, or the court documents related to the 1960s integration of public schools, uh, the four young girls who integrated William France and McDonough 19. Um, you can come in and look at photographs of, uh, individuals who played in the old Negro leagues, baseball here in new Orleans. Uh, we have films, films of African-American Mardi Gras balls, um, in the 1950s and sixties. So those are just a, just a few of the things that are accessible here, but we've been in, as I said, we've been in, in new Orleans since 1970, and we're currently on the campus of Tulane university, uh, and have been since the, since the mid eighties. But, um, While we're housed on Tulane's campus, we're actually an independent nonprofit institution. So we're a partner institution of Tulane, but separate governance, separate budgeting and finances.
0: Right. Um, and, and, And so we're, I hate to be this specific, but I just know that Um, it really helps for people to understand exactly how to get to something in order to go there. Exactly. And and Tulane is a big campus and I can have to figure out where to park. So let's just tell people how to find you.
2: Exactly. And any university campus is hard to, to hard to navigate. But fortunately we're in uh, Tilton Memorial hall, which was one of the three buildings right on St. Charles. So we're right across from Audubon park. Um, we're so that right main
0: up. building, when you're looking at the circle,
2: that main building, that circle, that's Gibson Hall. We're the one if you're facing the university. We're the one just on the left. So, um, streetcar stop right in front of our building. Um, but it's Tilton Memorial Hall. The actual address is six eight two three Saint Charles Avenue. Uh, if you're trying to navigate, so we're we're on campus, but fortunately we're on the edge of it, so we're a little easier to uh, to get to.
0: Um. I, I would imagine that people, uh, let's talk about some of the uses, some of the ways that people have been using your material. So mm-hmm. if somebody's making a film about a civil mm-hmm. rights incident event, and I, I imagine there's going to be more of those coming up now because mm-hmm. we really are dealing with a kind of a hot moment in right. reviewing our, our civil rights history, um, they're going to come to you.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And they're going to work with our staff who will help them identify um, resources that we have that's, that's available. Um, and we make those materials available for, for somebody who can come in. If they can't come in, if they can't make it to the center, we try to work with them to provide remote access, either through duplications or say, for example, it's, it's um, an oral history or a film clip. We might be able to upload that um, uh, to the web for them to view it. Um, you speak of, speak of, um, you know, uh, civil rights activities and filmmaking. We're actually in the midst of, uh, digitizing a, uh, 90 plus hours of a civil rights era documentary called Black Natchez. Um, which was produced um, in 1965 and 1967 uh, about activities in Natchez, Mississippi. Um, So we have um, uh, expert staff who work with researchers to identify materials, and then um, we work to make them available um, if it's, Something like film, um, we may have to transfer it to a digital format so folks can view it. Um, but the majority of our materials are, are available that, that someone can come in and view them or work with our staff to, to request copies of them.
0: It's, it's, um, I've known about it for a long time. And um, when you talk about the uh, sports material, I'm particularly fascinated with that because actually our organization is getting ready to do a, an exhibition called Out of Bounds which mm-hmm. is about sports and um, mm-hmm. a lot of the work that we're uh, gonna present is gonna be the work of youth. But um, I I went to the show at the Historic New Orleans Collection, which I'm sure um, they must have accessed some of your materials because Indeed. they had a lot about the civil rights movement and the interplay between sports and the civil rights movement. And so I imagine that, um, that uh, uh, that, that's the kind of thing that really can change people. Because uh, take me, for example, I am not a sports person. I really, I don't watch. The only thing I kind of like a little bit is basketball because I'm a dancer and it kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of dance. But going to that show with the Historic New Orleans Collection was very revelatory in terms of of getting a, that sense of that social interaction between yeah. the movement and, and sports. And so um, that's the kind of thing that you... Yeah. Your work results in yeah,
2: and that that exhibition actually drew heavily from from the collections here for the for the baseball section. Oh, and so, sure. you know, one of the the wonderful things about our collections is that you can take a look at these broader topics of civil rights of social justice. But oftentimes, what strikes me are the individual stories that are told within our collections. Related to sports, a number of years ago, we had an elderly gentleman come into the center. He had played Nord Summer League baseball in New Orleans um, back in the 1960s, and he recalled hitting the home run and uh, sliding into to home plate to win the championship for his team. And so he came in, he was, he was photographed, he was pictured in the Louisiana Weekly, uh, but he had lost that clipping during Hurricane Katrina. And so he came in one day uh, to try to find uh, an image uh, from the newspaper, which we were able to do. Next day, he comes back in, brings one of his old teammates in. Uh, they sit down and start going through. And that whole summer... I call them the the baseball boys, the boys of summer, who came in. All these guys who had played Nord uh, baseball were coming in and looking through the newspaper clippings to to kind of reminisce. And they would they would sit in our reading room as they were looking through and just start telling stories and reminiscing. And I looking back on, them, I thought, oh, I wish we would have had tape recorders just, to yeah, it, just so say, they could share their forward. stories. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the the type of things that that yeah. I I really Enjoy seeing it at Amistad as individuals coming in and kind of making those personal connections of their stories, their family stories. With the before I move
0: back, uh, before I move back to um, Jesse, because I want to find out about some of the other organizations that um, this fund has been uh, um, helping. Um, uh, tell me uh, once again a website where people can go to get further information, because they may or may not remember. Sure. It's um, it's
2: uh, uh, amistadresearchcenter.org. So it's a m i s t a d researchcenter.org.
0: All right, Jesse. Um, Yes, ma'am. To be able to play a role in supporting uh, that initiative, I'm sure. And um, I'm sorry that we haven't been able to figure out um, exactly what's going on with not getting Miranda on. So um, maybe you can fill in a little bit. I'm I'm going to I can follow up and add her to this. um, But um, give me just a little bit more uh, information on some of the particular um, organizations or initiatives that this that this fund at this time is helping.
1: So I actually, because we trusted the LEH so implicitly, they were sort of the, they were tasked with a, with the entire rubric for selecting the organizations and institutions that received the funding. So obviously we were just simply the funder in this because we, um, you know, the LEH has a longstanding relationship with so many um, of these organizations, as well as the ability to quickly vet and provide funds to those, um, maybe even that they did not have close relationships with. So I do defer to Miranda because I can't tell you the particular names of the organizations just because unless um we have received a thank you thus far there is no (laughs) formal you know i haven't i i don't know who all has been selected um as a recipient i was actually thrilled to see that amistad was a recipient um i have gotten word from certain organizations thus far that you know to say thank you because they have received notification that they did receive these funds and that we were the um It was, you know, specific to our funds. Um, One such that I have heard from is the Ogden Museum, which um, everyone knows that we are a large supporter of theirs just and really admire the work they're doing in the community, particularly right now in COVID with all of the digital platform work that they have rolled out so quickly. Um, But I am unsure as to many others yet, and I look forward to sort of hearing more about which organizations, again, big, small brick and mortar institutions, to organizations that have um, no no office space, even. Um, So I'm very intrigued to learn more. I wish I could speak to the specific ones. Um, Well,
0: we'll, um, I'll I'll catch up with Miranda and get some more on that. Before before we um, end our our conversation, let me just um, ask you to please um, add um, uh, a little bit about what you have uh, been doing in general because of course the the most prominent uh, thing that people are aware of is the um all the sculptures that we see on poetry street because there isn't any of us that don't pass down uh, poetry, <laughs> um, yes and so it's great to be able to see sculpture um, up and down that avenue i, I just is one of my favorite um, things in new orleans in, in terms of public um, art architecture all of that so thank you for all that um but um besides that and this um, cultural care uh, program. What um, what else are are you all um, uh, up to these days? What what is your focus on in terms of um, other initiatives? Sure.
1: Um, thank you for asking because it's been interesting with COVID, sort of obviously slowing down and stopping the visitor experience for a lot of the exhibitions we're supporting. Um, it's nice to have the opportunity to talk with folks about how they can still engage with some of our projects, even digitally, for the time being. We um, currently have supported the Micheline Thomas show, which is at the CAC, and the CAC is opening. Um, I believe I don't want to give you the wrong information. I think yesterday or today, and they'll be they'll remain open through July, I'm sorry, June 15th, and that will be the end of the McLean Thomas show, which we supported, and um, it's an incredible, incredible body of work um, produced by McLean Thomas, so I hope that people in the next couple of weeks can go and enjoy that through the socially distanced programming um, that the CAC is offering through time tickets and, you know, um, lower capacity than they can accept, the 25% capacity. Yeah, we also a is
0: big, is, is a big space, and it, it's yeah. It's so hard to be able to move around there and and, and not is, be on top of somebody else. So, um, I we are thrilled people that people that will remain. That
1: mm-hmm. We are thrilled that that will remain. You know that people will be able to catch it before it closes. Um, and then another um, exhibition that we funded that is up is the uh, Melvin Edwards show at the Ogden Museum, which um, will be will remain up through, I think, mid-August or maybe even September now due to COVID. So um, once that institution reopens, people will be able to engage with that as well. It was only up for a couple of weeks and it was a large investment on our part that we were really excited about. And so I'm hoping that, um, you know, once people are allowed to go to the museum, they'll be able to Enjoy the Melvin Edwards show. In addition to that, we are gearing up for Louisiana, including the L.A.s and that is an open call exhibition of Louisiana artists um, making contemporary work currently in the state. It is jury juror, the juror this year is Renee Morales from the Perez in Miami. And it's always an incredible opportunity for Louisiana artists to gain exposure to curators from all over the world as well as their work um, at the museum. So that will open, and we're really excited that that will still happen um, because it's an important project of ours year after year. And then one other thing that I'd like to bring the public's attention to is that the Enrique Alferez Sculpture Garden, which sits within the Botanical Garden, has been open now um, for the past couple of weeks. And we we continue to pay for the free day on Wednesday. So it's currently free on Wednesdays, and the garden is remaining open until 8 o'clock at night. Oh, can, can I just? Um, I have to, I have to let, the let me just... New kitchen garden serving picnic meals. So you can safely socially distance. Um, and...
0: I think we're having a little bit of trouble with Jesse's audio at the moment. Oh, no. I thought you were. Can you hear me? Yeah, it was just kind of like slowing down a little bit. Oh, no. Do you hear? Am am I better? Coming to a. uh, Am I better? I wanted to. I did. Maybe you were waiting for me to add a comment, which I really want to do because the Alphores Garden is, I think, one of the most exquisite. Um, combinations of landscaping and sculpture that I know of. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say I'm a world traveler, but I have spent time in um, quite a few other uh, locales and their sculpture gardens. And it's just so beautiful. It's, it's just beautifully landscaped. The sculptures are beautiful. The lighting is beautiful. It is a it's just a great place to come any time of day and i would say twilight in the evening would be a great time and that kitchen garden oh mg it is (laughs) it is a delight It was my last event as COVID settled in. It was a birthday, oh, no, <laughs> and uh, we were right there next to the food preparation, and that yes. is a total delight. And I highly recommend that as well. I remember when I did a little work with the um, garden just after uh, Katrina, when we had a grant to do some marketing, and and we we started doing some little uh, food service things in that garden, and, and it just it was just such a Natural uh, place for it, and the kitchen is really an important realization of its of its possibilities. I've taken a lot of your time, guys, and I really appreciate it. I'm not sure what happened to Miranda. Miranda, you're not on, are you? No, I'm going to get her on uh, separately and and get her story about some of the other organizations that have benefited from this. But yeah, uh, so many thank yous to the Hellas Foundation. Um, And to Amistad for making all that really fantastic material available. I'm going to come see you about some of that sports material. Maybe you have some of those gentlemen who are there. I would absolutely love to be able to invite them. (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, Really, it's it's a wonderful moment to be able to talk to people who are trying to um, do some good things in the midst of a very difficult time that we're going through in the country. OK, hopefully when this show airs on Friday, I hope that we will be seeing that little storm down there in the Gulf going someplace else. So maybe, maybe we don't have to add that to the mix. But um, oh thank you, Paul. Thank you, Jesse. Thank Hayes. you, Jim. Thank you, Jesse. And um, please uh, call on us whenever you have something fantastic going on. And uh, of course, thank you to Bob Marak for getting you on the show. Thank you so much, y'all, so much. Take care, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So um, we now have uh, Miranda Rostovic, who is the executive director of the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. I hope that's president and executive director. Um, And they are the organization that's actually managing the Louisiana Culture Care Fund, um, which is sponsored, as we've been discussing, Um, largely by the um, uh, Hellas Foundation. So um, I am uh, really fascinated to uh, talk with you about the program in general, but also about um, how the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities has embraced and uh, related to the history in our country of slavery and then the residuals of slavery which um, live with us today in these huge protests we're seeing all over the country um, that are addressing the continued um, police violence really uh, against um, uh, African Americans and and I'm sure if we look into it further um, that that, uh, uh, will include a lot of other um minority groups as well i mean i i, I don't have the uh, the story on that but I, I know there's a story on that so um tell me for, first of all just um why uh you felt it was important to do this particular project we've had a quite a bit of background on it already um from amistad and from the hellas foundation but um i'm interested to hear since I, I believe that your organization actually generated this this project is that right
3: that's right um... Yeah, I mean, I think, Jean, we, um, it, it feels like we're going from one uh, emergency to another and it's uh, simply getting compounded. But back two weeks ago when the pandemic was the biggest news cycle, um, you know, I think what we recognized was that um, this was a moment in time that uh, if we could, the LEH needed to step up and in whatever way possible support. Our long standing partners, which are our cultural institutions around the state, uh, upon whom we rely to do our work at the LEH, but also uh, those being the institutions that really um, undergird the cultural economy of the state and much of the innovative programming and educational programming uh, for our public uh, about our history and our culture. So, you know, the the idea really was whatever we could do to, to, to help others, that's what we were called to do. We were entrusted with federal dollars from the first uh, relief bill uh, that came out of Congress and that was sent to us through our parent organization, the National Endowment for the Humanities, through the CARES Act. So, we had some funding to put towards the initiative um, and uh, we mobilized. Across our staff to be able to quickly and nimbly accept applications for operating support that was really intended to help triage and stabilize our cultural institutions, which we feel like are the bedrock of our cultural economy and really our way of life um, in many ways. So it was the least we could do. Now, I want to, you know, put out there, Jean, that the funding that we're making available will not make any one organization whole. Um, The pandemic has wreaked havoc um, on everyone's lives, on the economy, not just in Louisiana, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, But uh, a helping hand is what we were able to provide and that is what we are doing.
0: So, um, actually I'm glad you uh, landed on that subject so early in our discussion because That's the one that really um, has me pondering and all of us pondering the future. Um, It's one thing for us to uh, seek some kind of initial relief uh, for the predicament that um, organizations and corporations and individuals and institutions, all of us are faced with. Um, But then there's the future. And um, that there's of course, huge uncertainty. Nobody really knows how this is going to develop. Um, there's also these amazing revelations that are not revelations of things that some of us didn't know and weren't aware of, but they didn't have the profile and, and the awareness level they have now, such as how um, uh, people with less means are so negatively affected in their health and that they would be, in fact, more vulnerable in, uh, to the virus and uh, to death. And um, and then also we've learned about um, how pollution plays a role, and that's uh, um, very intermingled, of course, also with uh, the history of land use in our state and how uh, many areas that um, are populated by our minorities have, in fact, taken the brunt of the petrochemical industry. Um, over the years, and that pollution has contributed also to a higher death rate. I think that the number I've heard is a 15% higher death rate. These are amazing things. We kind of knew it, um, and there has been there have been recent initiatives um, taken to try to counter that. That, of course, are being fought by the legislature right now. I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, so some of these efforts that uh, municipalities. Have been developing to resist taking money uh, from what they could be using for local programming and giving it in tax incentives to the petrochemical industry. And so now that's being um, the right to do that. I don't know who came up with that when, but that's a remarkable development. But now the legislature and the lobbyists are trying to fight that off. So this is a, a fraught time. And um, it's, it's, it's going to land up in the pages of the documents that you will ultimately be um, supporting, without a doubt, the documents and the media that you'll be um, uh, gathering. So um, I guess, like, I'm trying to get to the question at the end of that observation, but I guess uh, you have to be thinking about, um, right, how are you going to get your arms around how this is going to develop? And what are you thinking about in terms of longer term support for our cultural economy on the one hand, but also um, being able to really um, uh, grasp the history and um, support the recording of what's happening um, in a way that will um, elucidate what's going to come out of this. That was one of the longest questions I've ever expressed, but anyway. (laughs) um,
3: There's a lot to, um, as I said, I feel like, um, you know, the, it's all connected and um every uh every failure of the past is compounded by what we're experiencing not just with the pandemic but also with the events of last week and the death of george floyd and the subsequent um uh, mobilization of people out on the street i mean i think um, we are living um in a moment that is ripe for the humanities Um, and is going to inform, likely, as you stated, what our work is going to look like in the near future, not just from the kinds of grants that we might be getting from our cultural partners about the kinds of topics, exhibitions, panel discussions, documentary films that might be in the making already, um, but also in the capturing of the moment and recording it for what it is, Uh, from the different perspectives um, of the people who are experiencing it in very different ways, might I add, as you said, you know, the the long-standing, the history of our nation um, has not treated everyone the same. Um, And we are inheriting uh, the the history of our ancestors, and, and therefore are experiencing this moment through that lens and through that lineage. So I think you're right, this is a very um, important moment for the humanities, not just for the LEH, but nationally, for all humanities councils and every institution that is thinking about being, um, you know, the the folks who are documenting um, our histories, that are documenting our stories, that are documenting our human experience, that then will live on for future generations, we are thinking about this. And to that point, I think, um, you know, in July, we're going to be launching our second phase of our grant making, which focuses on our rebirth grants, which will shift from just general operating support, but towards supporting our cultural institutions and partners in the humanities to help them think about the future of their programming, um, to think about how they, what is going to be relevant for them to be doing. um, And then also, how are they going to get it out there to the public? Um, In light of the fact that there is still uncertainty about um, public health and safety of gathering um, the ways that Louisianans love to gather, which is shoulder to shoulder, um, you know, in packed rooms or dance halls or festival grounds. So I think um, this is... um, this calls for creativity. It calls for nimbleness. It calls for us to be open and to be listening. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about all of that as we think about that rebirth grant process that we're going to launch next.
0: And, um, um, I mean, you really have the burden also of how much of the history of a uh, slavery of resistance of, um, Jim Crow of, um, uh, really uh, coming out, uh, uh, emancipation and, and today's uh, continuing process of trying to right the wrongs uh, have, have taken place in Louisiana. There's, we just have a huge issue. We, we were a huge market for slavery. Um, some of the very first slave ships that arrived in America arrived here. Um, mm-hmm. Our whole economy was really very much based on um, the backs of slaves. Um, so, so this is of, of particular importance. What's happening now uh, with the um, protest movement around um, police deaths? I don't want to pin it to one because there's been too many um, deaths at the hands of uh, police arrests. Arrests. So, um, how how are you thinking about again, kind of getting your arms around such a um, very rich history that we have? right now as we're uh, dealing with this issue nationally?
3: Well, I, th- I think about it in terms of um, you know, what we can offer. Um, and I think what people know the LEH for and our platforms like 64 Parishes magazine and our encyclopedia on 64parishes.org, as well as the kind of public programs that we have supported or recognized, um, is that we are a trusted source of information um we we, uh, we operate in um in fact you know in research in um in ideas that really force people to confront um our histories and really help them understand how That is relevant to our present and how that might inform our future. And I think that's where we need to live. And that's why, you know, I would encourage uh, your listeners to go to 64parishes.org. I mentioned to you, we just posted this morning the listicle. Uh, It's a list of our suggested readings from our archives Um, uh, for historical context for the moment that we're all grappling with right now that speaks to the very uh, histories that you were mentioning just now. Um, and, you know, yes, unfortunately, Louisiana rises to the top of states that um, have a lot to still uncover about our difficult past. Um, but uh, the nation, it, it's all relevant to where we are as a nation and what's happening across. Um, you know, across the nation,
0: yeah, we're um, also a history of important breakthroughs too, and uh, and and again, resistance. So uh, a lot of people don't realize how much of the early civil rights history was born in Louisiana. Uh, much of it, right in our central city neighborhood. Um, people don't realize that Martin Luther King, uh, uh, in in many ways, got his start here. He he really started to. Uh, talk and preach and organize here in Louisiana, and um, many of the organizing groups that work throughout the South um, had, if not roots here, they had early stages of development here. And so some of our, our civil rights leaders um, are also important nationally and not just in our state. So um, it's it's really an interesting moment for us to call attention to that role that we played both in the sad beginnings, but also how we've resisted and it's not over by far. And it'll be very interesting to me to see how we go forward because of course, at the moment, our protests have been peaceful and that's very important. And I think a lot of our civil rights uh, uh, important moments were peaceful as compared to some parts of the country. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm gonna be fascinated to see how your process uh, helps in the revealing of our history, in some cases as as models for how it should be. I mean, the fact that we have been protesting quite vigorously with many people out there, but not violent, violently, um, is, is something that is a story that needs to be told.
3: Absolutely. And, and I think these conversations have to be happening um, Across all age groups, across our entire state. I mean, specifically speaking for Louisiana, and I think we have really been thinking about uh, broadly about how to deploy um, our platforms and our resources to um, generate those conversations and those opportunities for reflection across um, the demographics, across the age ranges. I mean, for example, you know, 64parishes.org. Um, is uh, heavily utilized by our Louisiana history teachers um, because there is no textbook on Louisiana history that is currently being utilized in our classrooms. Um, They are coming to our resource and they're reading the scholarship of our uh, humanists and writers. And that is encouraging because we are not sugarcoating the history. um, And that we want to put more effort behind that. Because that is getting directly to our future generations. And if they can start to really engage with those stories and those histories um, in their formative years, then they're set up uh, for a different kind of leadership and civic engagement for the future, which is, you know, at the founding of why the federal government established the National Endowments for the Arts and the Humanities, is to ensure that we create. An informed citizenry, um, so, and we take that seriously.
0: We're, we're just about out of time, but let's close with what I should have opened with, and that is a definition of the humanities, a simple, um, quick uh, uh, explanation of, because I think a lot of people think about the arts and they don't really understand what the humanities are about. So um, your um, closing statement on the humanities and how you are doing what you just described.
3: Absolutely. So. You know, the humanities are typically thought of as uh, certain disciplines of study, um, like history or anthropology or philosophy, um, and that is applicable to the higher institutions. But I think we operate in the public humanities, and what that means is we really want to translate scholarship for public consumption that helps us reflect on who we are as human beings and how we are participating in the creation of our culture and our society. Um, And that is meant to be consumed uh, by everybody. Uh, You don't have to be a a, a university professor or a grad student to participate in the public humanities and to contribute to the public humanities.
0: Thank you, that was a beautiful (laughs) description of what you do. And um, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, for the uh, for the Louisiana Culture Care Fund project, which, if I understand correctly, it closes on uh, June 30th, so That's people right. still apply for yes. those grants. So please, everybody, do go to 64parishes.org to see what the possibilities are to see if what you're doing fits in the criteria. And um, thank you again to uh, the Hellis Foundation for partnering and supporting this. And um, I um, am glad that Amistad has been one of the beneficiaries also, especially in this context. Miranda, thank you for everything you do. And um, I'm going to close the show with uh, this also and say we're going to just be continuing to look into these issues of how Um, the history of Louisiana is a part of this bigger national and really international story. Um, it's, It's something that we all hope that this is going to turn out to be an inflection point is the words that's being used a lot. Will this be the change moment? Will we achieve, as you hear a lot of the protesters say, real change instead of a moment of kneeling, which all power to all the police chiefs and public officials who've been joining the protesters in kneeling. That's a remarkable development and a beautiful affront, as far as I'm concerned, to the president's um, attempts to uh, punish the NFL for allowing its players at one time not too long ago to, to kneel in protest for what this very same subject. So I hope this is it. This is Jean Nathan. It's Down Conversations, and we'll be back next week with um, former mayor Mark Morial, for one, and others to continue this, this dialogue.